This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on the Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Ambassador Ken O'Flaherty is the COP26 Regional Ambassador for Asia Pacific, the Caribbean, and small island developing states. He worked closely with governments, business, and civil society across the region to boost climate action ahead of the COP26 Leaders Summit, which took place in Glasgow last year. He continues to do so right up till the upcoming COP27, which is going to happen in Sharm el Sheikh. So he joins me in the studio today to share more about his reflections of the outcomes of COP26 from last year, his hopes for the upcoming talks in COP27 and also the main priorities and challenges in Asia and the Pacific with regards to climate action. Welcome, Ken. How are you today? Hi, Juliet. Great to be here. Thank you so much for joining me today. So, Ken, I know you've worked in a wider range of issues, climate change, uh, energy to economic, you, you, EU cooperation, all sorts of things, right? Um, but can you explain what your role is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the UK UK government's COP26 regional ambassador to those three places, yeah. Great. Well, I mean, COP26 was a major event for the UK. Over 196 governments travelled to Glasgow last November, and we were very conscious that this was a crucial moment in global efforts to tackle climate change. We also knew we had to marshal all our diplomatic resources in support of a strong result, and so we appointed four regional ambassadors to help our engagement worldwide. Mm -hmm. My job um, entails uh, engagement with governments, but also with business, with civil society, with media, um, to essentially ramp up um, support for stronger climate action. Mm-hmm. Okay, and talk to me a little bit about the work that you've been doing. You know, uh, so you've visited obviously many, many countries. Uh, you're here in Malaysia. You're heading off already tonight, from what I hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to me about the work you've carried out as part of this role. Sure. Well, I think I'm immensely privileged because I'm working on the most important issue worldwide, and I'm working in what is possibly the most important region um, worldwide. Certainly, Asia is home to the world's biggest populations, some of the world's fastest growing economies, and the decisions which are being made in this region will be crucial to deciding whether or not the world meets the 1.5 degrees Celsius global warming goal agreed in Paris seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had the honour uh, to be engaging with prime ministers, ministers across governments uh, across this region, um, lobbying, of course, um, for stronger action, notably um, on emissions. Um, so encouraging countries to move away from coal, which is by far the most polluting uh, source of energy, and to ramp up efforts on solar, wind, hydro, and other clean technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also uh, very engaged on the question of adaptation. So how do we deal with the impacts of climate change? And we know that across the world, um, countries are dealing with impacts today Mm -hmm. of climate change, notably through extreme weather events. They need support uh, and we need to be sharing solutions to the challenges that that represents. Mm -hmm. And finally, also lobbying around climate finance. So the wealthier uh, nations in this region um, need to do more um, to support countries which are dealing with the impacts of the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. Okay, we will talk a little bit more about finance after this. But, you know, you, of course, are a better place than most to comment on how uh, governments are actually tackling, you know, issues surrounding the environment, right? How has it been getting those sorts of, you know, I mean, sustainable development, uh, that agenda more widely accepted across governments in different countries, and particularly, you know, here in developing countries where, you know, the economy is more on their minds than, Mm. you know, things like uh, the climate crisis, for example. Absolutely. Well, I think my job would have been much more difficult 10 years ago mm-hmm. um, because we, I would have been asking countries to take an economic hit to deal with the impacts of climate change, which in some ways might have been quite a logical thing because we know that in the long term, the economic impacts of climate change will far outweigh um, the investments needed. Yeah. But the one thing that's changed over the last decade is that we now know renewable energy is the cheapest source of energy. 
So we're not asking countries to sacrifice growth. On the contrary, um, countries which are investing more strongly in green technologies will have higher growth rates in the future. So I think it's been quite exciting to see that across Asia, to see the amount of solar, wind technology really expanding, ramping up. I was in Vietnam um, just a couple of months ago and the number of offshore wind turbines they are building now is incredible because they have seen this is key to unlocking greater growth for the future. Mm -hmm. And so I've definitely been helped uh, by all of that. I think also the fact of growing public awareness of the impacts of climate change is having a real impact on governments worldwide. And so I know here in Malaysia, you've suffered from significant flooding. I know that that's also um, driving in greater engagement from people across Malaysia on the questions around climate change. And the same applies across the region. And so I'm very lucky. Um, But I think also despite um, all that greater engagement, we need even more. Mm -hmm. I'm very confident the market will deliver a green economy worldwide. um, But the question is, can we move fast enough um, to prevent uh, global warming exceeding 1.5 degrees? Mm -hmm. That is the question indeed. And, you know, you've been, this is not your first trip to Malaysia. You've been here before. You've, you know, you've been meeting lots of people. You've had lots of uh, engagements. Uh, Talk to me about some of that, you know, the the people you've been speaking to, some of your reflections, I guess, from your visits here. Sure. Well, during this visit, I've had the honour to meet the Crown Prince of Pahang Pahang, and the Mayor uh, of Kuala Lumpur, who I met uh, on a previous visit as well. Mm -hmm. In other visits, I've met the Economic Minister, Tok Pa, uh, the Kaza Secretary General, Datuk Seri, Dr. Zain Ujang. But I've also met um, youth activists here. I've met businesses and a very wide uh, range of political stakeholders, including members of Parliament. And so I've been struck, um, as I say, by the greater engagement on climate change um, here. Um, I've also been struck, of course, by the significant analysis announcements um, that Malaysia has made around net zero, around uh, phasing out of coal. And so I think there's a really positive dynamic here. And I hope um, that that will accelerate even further in the coming months. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I guess, you know, talk to me a little bit about what your role is in discuss in these discussions with, you know, uh, the Malaysian counterparts that you spoke to. Sure. Um, well, part of it is, of course, setting out the political context mm-hmm. uh, and uh, ensuring that um, that is understood across all branches of government and politics. And, and in many cases, uh, people are surprised at the pace of change worldwide. And so um, I think there's a poss- possibly a positive um, race to zero um, <laughs> now, now underway. Okay. Um, but there's also questions around support. You know, we are a close partner of Malaysia, uh, a Commonwealth partner. Um, we are um, keen to be helping the journey here. And so we, I've also discussed um, areas of cooperation around things like carbon markets, around um, support for the forestry sector. Um, and of course, I've visited myself um, some of the efforts around a more sustainable agriculture culture here in Malaysia. Okay, excellent. And um, in terms of what you've been hearing, right, especially from, you know, the official side of things, right, uh, Malaysia's plans to curb emissions, what are you most hopeful about? What, you know, what are you optimistic about from what you've heard? Well, I think the announcement uh, around net zero um, at COP26 by uh, your Prime Minister was a major step forward. Mm-hmm. Um, last time I visited Malaysia a few months ago, I heard from the business community how that was increasingly being integrated into planning by the wider economic actors here in Malaysia. And so I think uh, we do need 
all parts of society to be engaging um, in support of a clear goal. And so that sense of direction from the government is absolutely crucial. I think another thing that gives me confidence is the announcement um, that Malaysia will be phasing out coal within the next two decades and that there will be no new um, coal power reactors. That's very positive for the climate. I think it's also very positive uh, for Malaysia's economy. Um, And I'm struck um, now during my meetings how people recognise this is key to Malaysia's future economic trajectory. Mm -hmm. Um, That if Malaysia adapts quickly, embraces green technologies, there's prospects for greater growth. Mm -hmm. Yes, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive, isn't it? Yes, development and and looking after our environment. But are there some areas that perhaps you might be a little bit concerned about? Um, I don't think I would express it as concern, but there's definitely um, opportunities there. Um, so every country worldwide um, has to bring forward um, something called a nationally determined contribution or yes. NDC, yes. which sets out concrete plans um, for um, the transition between now and 2030. And Malaysia um, actually submitted an NDC early uh, before um, Glasgow, um, but that didn't then reflect the new net zero pledge made by your prime minister. So I think you now have the opportunity to revise that and to set out clear policies which are aligned with that uh, goal for 2050 uh, and I hope that um, we are able to, to support that process as well. Mm-hmm. And how? what would support in that process look like? Um, I think sharing of best practice, um, notably uh, around the energy transition. The UK for example is an expert in offshore wind. If that's something of interest uh, to Malaysia then we'd be very happy to share expertise there. But I think also we have been very strongly engaged across the world during our COP26 presidency. So of course very happy to share best practice that we have seen in other countries as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Doors are always open for discussion, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, I'm speaking today to Ambassador Ken Oflati. He is the UK government's COP26 regional ambassador for Asia Pacific, Caribbean and small island developing states. We're talking about his, well, basically what his role is as the regional ambassador and also, you know, some of his hopes uh, following COP26. And also we're going to talk about his hopes looking up to COP27, which is happening next month. We'll continue that discussion after this quick break. Keep it right here on Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Joining me in the studio today, Ambassador Ken O'Flaherty. He is the UK government's COP26 regional ambassador for Asia-Pacific, Caribbean and small island developing states. Uh, uh, ambassador Ken has been travelling across all these countries, you know, sharing best practices, you know, helping helping governments to ra- and also business and civil society to boost climate action, uh, especially now ahead of uh, COP27. You've been doing it since last year, of course, ahead of COP26. So Ken, you know, you were talking a little bit about, um, yeah, what's happening here in Malaysia uh, and also the countries that you visited. As far as you're concerned, right, what are truly meaningful efforts that we as Malaysians can do to build resilience to the climate crisis and also to curb greenhouse gas emissions, specifically here in Malaysia? Sure. Um, well, we, globally, first of all, I think building resilience is absolutely crucial. And this was a key element of the Glasgow Climate Pact agreed in November last year. Um, we know that we have to do everything we can to limit emissions. But we also know that extreme weather events are going to become even more frequent and even more destructive across the world yeah. um, over coming years. And that certainly includes here in Malaysia. I think one practical example in Malaysia um, would be the uh, efforts by Kuala Lumpur City Hall's uh, team to 
to prepare for extreme weather events. I, during my last visit, I met uh, the mayor of Kuala Lumpur. I visited um, the multi-hazard risk platform that TBKL use to support their disaster response and planning. And that's work that we have developed through a UK-Malaysia partnership between Cambridge University and University Kebangsan, Malaysia, which was also funded by the Newton um, Unku Umar Fund. And the platform aims to provide early warnings for extreme weather through quite finely grained forecasts that can provide early warnings and can also help with early action. I think one other uh, message I heard very clearly from my engagement with um, local societies across the region is the importance of involving local communities in efforts around adaptation. Local communities um, best know um, the challenges which they face and therefore integrating that um, in adaptation planning is absolutely crucial. Mm -hmm. Indigenous people and local communities, right? Yes, definitely. And I just wanted to ask you something about uh, something I read uh, you saying before. You said that having net zero... zero emission targets is not enough. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Well, I I don't want to underplay the importance of Of net zero statements because in the UK, certainly we found our net zero statement um, provided very clear direction for business, for investors and for um, the changes which need to happen in our economy. But what I meant was that we need to ensure that there is clear planning um, following those statements. They need to be put into action. Um, implementation is key. And so um, I've heard here about the work being undertaken by the Malaysian government to develop a carbon market, for example, an NDC roadmap and other policies to implement their net zero um, carbon commitment. As I said earlier, we want to be supporting um, those efforts as much as we can to facilitate um, technical cooperation. But we also work at sub-national level, including um, through projects in states like Terengganu on forest finance and Sarawak um, on the green economy planning, for example. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in terms of, you know, finding solutions and things like that, you know, a lot of it points towards technology as, as sort of like the saviour of, you know, of us all, right? Mm. But nature-based solutions, you know, are you are you in support of that? Are you a strong proponent of that as well? Absolutely. I, mean, I engage quite strongly on this topic. And indeed, across this region, I've often visited um, examples of nature-based solutions. Just a few weeks ago, I was in a, a restored peatland um, in uh, West Kalimantan, mm-hmm. for example. Um, but I think nature-based solutions can provide up to 30% of the most cost-effective solutions to climate change. And that will include things like forests, obviously, which is what everybody immediately thinks of. Um, But it also includes mangroves, which can store up to three times more carbon than trees. It includes peatlands, um, which, if they are allowed to degrade, can release huge amounts of uh, uh, methane and other gases into the atmosphere. Um, So we are a very strong proponent nationally um, of nature conservation. That was reflected in the Glasgow Leaders' Declaration on forestry and land use, um, the High Ambition Coalition for Nature and People, and support for the 30 by 30 goal, which I think um, you've discussed previously in this programme, that the concept um, of protecting 30% of the world's uh, forests and and our oceans um, by 2030 to ensure um, biodiversity, uh, but also to ensure um, that we're better equipped to tackle um, climate change. I think the nature-based solutions are a win-win. They are supportive of climate, uh, but they're also I'm supportive of biodiversity. Here in Malaysia, you are one of the most mega biodiverse nations um, in the world. And so I know this is particularly important uh, for countries such as Malaysia. Mm-hmm, definitely. I mean, we're looking also, you know, COP27 is coming up, but also COP15, isn't it? The biodiversity talk. Exactly. That's going to be a huge exactly. one as well. And 
I'm sorry, if I may say, um, during this visit, I actually attended a tree planting ceremony um, at the British High Commissioner's um, residence, which was part of the uh, government's 100 million tree campaign. Ah, um, okay. And it was a, a honour, of course, to meet the Crown Prince, but also uh, to be participating in your efforts nationally to protect your biodiversity. Okay, excellent. I'm glad to hear that. And... Um, you know, just now we were talking about how, you know, and this happens a lot in Malaysia as well. You know, the, the fact that, okay, there's a lot of forest desertments and things like that. And there's always this saying that it has to be done in terms of uh, development, right? But as I also said just now, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. And you've also, you've also said that Malaysia stands to benefit e- economically. Um, you know, if we could expand further into green technology, renewable energy, you know, looking into other things, right, as well. What do you think are some opportunities for Malaysia in those fields? Um, I think this will be the growth sector for the coming decade, particularly across Asia. We're seeing um, governments across the region recognise the importance of green technology, of renewable energy. And so countries which adapt quickly um, to that change will reap the benefit and higher growth, those which don't, and we'll see lower growth in the future. Mm-hmm. And we know that renewable energy provides three times more jobs um, than investment in the coal um, sector. And we also know that um, the use of fossil fuels actually has major health impacts on populations, which often aren't factored in to economic calculations, but uh, investment in renewable um, can actually more than provide more than double uh, the amount of benefits in economic uh, yeah. terms from, from reduced health costs. Mm-hmm. So I think as a society, as an economy, the benefits are clear, um, but we do need to ensure that this is a just transition. Correct. And so we need to ensure that um, those uh, people whose jobs are um, affected by the transition away from fossil fuels are provided support, for example, through retraining, um, and to ensure um, that the government is, uh, governments across the region uh, are managing this process to ensure that their peoples um, benefit as much as they should um, from these new economic opportunities. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any sort of limitations, you know, from all your visits to all these different countries, limitations when it came to uh, implementing renewable energy and you mentioned just transition, right? I mean, any good examples you can share? Um, I think certainly um, there are within the Pacific Islands, for example, um, there are very clear limitations because in some cases their atolls are disappearing. Yeah. Um, so entire <laughs> um, communities are having yeah. to be relocated yeah. uh, because of the impacts of climate change. And we will see more of that across this region, I think, um, over the coming two decades. Um, I think there are some good examples um, of uh, countries which have embraced uh, the renewable energy uh, revolution um, that are ensuring that um, the uh, both the installation and the maintenance of um, those new uh, solar fields, for example, uh, provide jobs for the local community. Um, There's also examples of how they can ensure local communities benefit from microgrids on solar energy and so that actually provides greater energy security um, Mm. for those communities and and they in countries such as Papua New Guinea, uh, for example, where there's uh, communities very far away uh, from one another, it doesn't make sense to build massive um, electric cables across the country. And so generating energy locally can can be really powerful. Um, So I think those kind of benefits are very important. And of course, as I said earlier, solar power is now the cheapest source of energy. So um, there's an incredible efficiency saving for local communities that can be provided through these technologies. Mm -hmm. And you're also hopeful that, you know, Malaysia can also really benefit from uh, renewable energy systems, large scale. um, But how about small scale as well? What do you think? 
Well, I mean, Malaysia obviously has a particular geography and there will be some communities where I'm sure um, mini grids may well make sense. Um, equally, um, I think I've been quite impressed by um, planning around the national energy policy, which was launched, I think, a month ago. Yeah. Um, and that's setting new um, renewable energy targets, um, including quite high ambitions um, for electric vehicles of 38% uh, by 2040. Um, in the UK, it will be impossible um, to buy a new electric vehicle, by, uh, sorry, a new uh, petrol car after 2030. Um, so we are moving rather faster and we're very keen to be sharing that experience with our Malaysian partners as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, but you know everything that we've been talking about it needs financing, isn't it? And mm. that's something, as you mentioned, a huge part of uh, what you advocate for and what you discuss. Money, of course, seen as key to driving the changes that we need to prevent climate catastrophe. Um, aside from your talks with governments, right, and you said you also speak to businesses and you know the private sector. You know, they are, are they part of the formal negotiating process that occurs at you know our annual COP, our annual uh, climate conferences? How would how should they contribute? Well, I think there's, there's many aspects to that question. On the one hand, businesses are hearing loud and clear from consumers around the world that consumers want to buy more sustainable products. And so there is a market incentive on them to adapt themselves and to producing products using renewable energy. An example would be in Cambodia, where um, international importers of textiles from Cambodia recently wrote to the government saying they want to be purchasing garments and textiles made using renewable energy energy because that is what their consumers back in Europe and elsewhere are demanding. And so I think that is delivering change and certainly that can be um, quite powerful. I think we're also seeing that major companies, um, uh, multinational companies, um, are finding it harder to recruit if they're not taking action on this agenda. People don't want to be working for companies um, which are polluting the world and which are not part of the solution. And we're seeing major companies around the world join the race to zero, setting net zero targets themselves as businesses. Another aspect would be the fact that at Glasgow, we were very um, keen to enlist the support of major financial institutions worldwide. And so we launched the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. So these are banks, financial institutions who are committed to net zero themselves as institutions and to be supporting um, climate friendly businesses around the world. And so that's unlocking potentially trillions of dollars worldwide um, in support of green projects. Mm -hmm. So you're quite hopeful then that, you know, a lot more are going to come on board and, you know, everyone is okay going to get (laughs) a lovely nod over there. (laughs) And and there's something called um, TCFD, uh, so um, the obligation on companies to report um, the impacts um, of uh, what their their activities are on climate. And my understanding is that planning is underway here in Malaysia for uh, major companies to have an obligation uh, for such reporting by 2024. And so we're already seeing companies prepare uh, for that, which I think is a really positive development. Mm-hmm, definitely. And um, I do want to talk a little bit about... Um, also on the topic of finance, right? Your views about a finance facility for loss and damage beyond climate uh, finance for mitigation and adaptation. So, you know, we've been seeing, we, as you mentioned, you know, we've been seeing the impacts already uh, of the climate crisis already impacting uh, Asian countries. So, for example, the Pakistan floods, right? Countries, a country who contributed practically nothing or very little to the emissions burdened by the climate impacts, um, 
they were drowning, right? And, mm. and not enough finance coming. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, you know? Absolutely. We're seeing these kinds of events worldwide. I think we were all very moved by, by seeing the coverage around um, the recent flooding in Pakistan. But it's not just Pakistan. A third of Bangladesh was underwater exactly. um, last yeah. year, for example. Um, communities across uh, the Pacific, the Caribbean, are affected every year um, by major extreme weather events. And so loss and damage is happening. I think the UK presidency um, has recognised that and has been keen um, to be supporting pragmatic solutions. At Glasgow, um, we established the Glasgow Dialogue on Funding Arrangements uh, for Loss and Damage, and that met for the first time um, this June. It has a mandate to continue discussions until 2024. Um, So it's important to continue that uh, process, and we certainly want to be engaging strongly um, on this issue of loss and damage. We are also proud to have launched the Santiago Network uh, for Loss and Damage, which is a platform for catalyzing technical assistance Mm -hmm. um, around uh, loss and damage. And we also want to make progress at COP27 uh, with, with, of course, our our Egyptian presidency partners. Mm -hmm. Okay, and let's let's talk about COP27 now. Oh, but before that, let's talk about COP26. Just looking back, uh, you know, from the outcome from those talks, what were you most optimistic about? You know, what, uh, yeah, what was, yeah, what made you happy, I suppose, from the outcome of those talks? I think... Across all three pillars of the Paris Agreement. So the Paris Agreement, um, uh, there was mitigation, so action on emissions. There was adaptation, so dealing with the consequences of climate change. And there was finance. Mm -hmm. Um, On cutting emissions, COP26 marked the single biggest reduction in emissions commitments um, in any COP um, throughout history. So whenever we started our presidency, um, the world was heading, I think, for a 2.6 degree Celsius warming world. Um, If every country implements what they agreed at Glasgow, um, then the International Energy Agency calculates we're on track for 1.8 degrees Celsius, which is not enough. And we need to go further to meet the 1.5 degrees Celsius target agreed um, in Paris. But it's a major step forward. I think um, that Asia played its part in that. I think that uh, historically, perhaps Asia was not um, the region of the world which was most active on climate change, but that's really changed. And we've seen across ASEAN, across Asia, major new net zero commitments, major commitments to end the use of coal, to ramp up um, solar. So I think we're in a much more positive place now, but we have to ensure that those commitments made at Glasgow are implemented and that they um, are accelerated further. On adaptation, we also secured agreement um, to double the amount of adaptation finance um, by 2025. And so part of my role has been engaging with donors to make sure that commitment as well is also met. For the UK, we always try to lead by example. So our international assistance is already broadly balanced between adaptation uh, and mitigation. Um, But I think there's obviously a lot more to play for. um, But I think the big change I would note is just the political will that leaders around the world have recognised they cannot ignore this, their peoples are demanding action on climate change and we have a, a responsibility for our children uh, because otherwise um, the, uh, in a 3 degree Celsius world and a 2.6 degree Celsius world um, there will be large disruption to economies, to societies and communities worldwide. Mm-hmm. And looking ahead to COP27, just around the corner, happening over in Sharm el-Sheikh, uh, what, what do you think the focus will be at this upcoming talks uh, and what are your hopes or I suppose expectations? Um, well, certainly there's been lots of progress since COP26. We've seen um, new government, for example, in Australia, um, which is now uh, taking much greater action on climate change domestically. Uh, we've seen new NDCs worldwide, I think 22, including from the UK, from India, um, from Indonesia. Um, but returning to that question of implementation, we need to see um, even more. We need to embed the particular initiatives that were launched at COP26. So, for example, I mentioned the Glasgow Leaders Declaration on Forest and Land Use. 
where Malaysia was one of the signatories. We're now starting a follow-up process called the Forests and Climate Leaders Partnership, which will have its first meeting at COP27 to keep up momentum um, on that area. And I think there are other areas for where there are grounds for optimism. So we have a new net zero goal on aviation, for example, global civil aviation, which was agreed at the ICAO assembly um, just a few weeks ago, which again, Malaysia is part of. And I think I'm also optimistic around finance. We are uh, very clear that donors have to meet uh, their commitment to reach that 100 billion goal. I personally think that should be met um, next year. Um, and I think that we're also seeing the private sector um, come in much more strongly in support of action in this area. So um, grounds for optimism, but we all have to do all we can in every sector of society to ensure that that uh, commitment is made. Mm-hmm. And keeping up with the optimism, but also just just with a little bit of not so great mm-hmm. optimism, yeah, yeah. it's obvious, you know, that these issues, if, you know, if we ignore it, um, it's just going to come to detriment, you know, it's just going to come to impact all of us, right? Every Absolutely. single individual, right? S- society is going to suffer. How w- can you help paint a picture of how a failure to act will impact our world? So we will see large parts of the world become uninhabitable. We will see um, major sea level rise, um, which will mean that um, not just communities in the Pacific, but communities in coastal uh, communities around the world will have to relocate. Um, We will see major losses by insurance companies and the damage caused by extreme weather events. And we will see um, societies... um, uh, entirely changed uh, through the impacts of those events. We'll see families um, losing family members through those events. We will see um, large parts of uh, particular countries become uninhabitable, which will mean people will move, so greater migration. Uh, Water will become an increasingly uh, uh, scarce um, uh, resource, and so that will cause greater security tensions potentially in the future as well. Um, So we have the opportunity now to keep that 1.5 degrees Celsius target. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the, the consequences of not taking action strongly now um, will come to haunt us and our children for decades to come. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, just one final message from you, Ken, you know, uh, any message to stakeholders uh, in the region, I guess, you know, both public and private regarding how, you know, we can all contribute towards the achievement of a successful COP27. Well, I think we have to have all elements of society engaged in support of climate action. So whether ahead of COP27 or 28 or for for the years to come, I think individually we can make choices as consumers um, to buy more sustainable products. We can choose to use public transport where it's available. Um, We can encourage family members um, to be more ecological and more sustainable in their approach. We can, um, as economic actors and and members of businesses, we can encourage business decisions um, which are in line with net zero. Um, We can ensure political momentum uh, in support of strong action on climate change. Um, So I think every Every sector of society needs to be engaged and we all have a potential impact um, on the outcomes of COP27 and COPs indeed in the future. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Ken, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Ambassador Ken O'Flaherty, the UK government's COP26 regional ambassador to Asia-Pacific, Caribbean and small island developing states. If you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always download the podcast at bfm.my earth or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.